All right, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Welcome to Summit Crossing. Uh, if you are visiting with us this morning, we just want to say welcome. Uh, thanks for giving us some of your time. Uh, if you are new with us, every week that we talk to new people who are coming here, we want you to know that what we do here on Sunday is really just the tip of the iceberg of who we are as a church. And we would love to help you get connected uh, deeper into relationships here at the church. We really believe that the church isn't something you come to on Sunday. It's something that you live throughout the week. And so if we can help you to connect with other people here, that's a big win for us. And we hope it would be a big win for you. There's some connect cards in the back of the chairs. You can fill one of those out. You can drop them in these offering boxes that are out there on your way out the door today. We would love to uh, follow up with you and just help you to maybe connect into one of our groups that we have going on throughout the week, maybe some of our Bible studies, mainly just get you around some other people so that you feel like you can be known uh, when you're here. And I'll just also say this if you're new with us, that uh, we don't want you to be anything but you. And so don't feel like you got to put on any masks or, or be something other than who you are. Uh, this is a really safe place for you. I uh, hear we have people all over the spectrum of their spiritual journey. And so if you feel like uh, you, you would have to come here and put a mask on, our, our hope is that instead you could come here and just make yourself at home. Uh, just be you. And so our, our only hope for you uh, ultimately is that you would believe in Jesus. And so that's all we're offering ultimately. And so if you don't believe in him, our prayer is that you would by the end of the day. Uh, we don't think it's an accident that you're here. And so uh, we just wanted to say thank you for, for coming. Uh, a couple things before we get started. Uh, I want to uh, talk about the, the war that's going on between Ukraine and Russia. We've had a lot of people talk about that, and then I'm going to do some announcements after we take some time to pray for that, and then we'll jump into our sermon series where we're going through John. And so let's, let's talk a little bit about what's going on around the world right now. We've had a lot of people come and just talk to us uh, at a lot of different levels about the war that's going on in Ukraine right now, uh, and we just kind of wanted to address it from the stage. We, we, we think it's a big enough deal that we just want to kind of encourage you to keep talking, to keep praying. Uh, ultimately, we believe Jesus is, is still in control. In fact, what we'll talk about today, it's kind of timely for us to hear about how in control Jesus is, even in the midst of a world that at times feels like it might be completely out of control. Uh, he still is. And, and we want you to hear that our heart is uh, for the people in Ukraine, uh, ultimately that peace would come over that land and that, and that you know, uh, and, and that the war would end, like, literally now. And so um, we're not running away from that because we don't believe that the gospel stops in this room. We don't believe the gospel is simply a local thing, but we really do believe that the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. And so, therefore, as his followers, as Jesus' followers, uh, we, we care deeply about those who are facing suffering throughout the world. And so we, we don't want to shy away from that. If you want to talk some more about it, uh, we'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, if you want to contribute something to that, we, we'll, we'd love to get you uh, uh, connected with some of the groups that we trust uh, if you're interested in participating financially in that. Um, and then if you have other questions about how you can be supporting uh, the, uh, all, all the people that are being impacted by this war, then, man, we would love to talk to you some more about that. But what I do want to do today is just, uh, I, I realize that we have uh, a mixed crowd in here, so if you're, if you're not a Christian in the room, uh, we're about to pray for, uh, for what's going on in Ukraine. We encourage you just to sit there, and it, it, it's okay. Like, um, you don't feel like you have to do anything, but what I'm going to do is just kind of pray uh, over this whole situation. And if you're part of our church, I would just kind of encourage you to pray along along in your own way, uh, silently, even as I'm praying um, on behalf of our church uh, for the people of Ukraine, the people of Russia, and, and everybody impacted um, by this war right now. 
Uh, and so let's pray. Father, we, we gather this morning, and, and I just want to take a moment just to, along with everyone else in the room, acknowledge that you are God, we are not. And so, Lord, we have just have sung about you, we've worshipped you because you are higher than all things. And so, Lord, we, we gather before you acknowledging your glory, acknowledging your power, acknowledging your might, acknowledging your sovereignty over this world. And yet at the same time, God, we, we don't gather before you trembling. We gather before you uh, and, and we come to you right now as your beloved sons and your beloved daughters because of the grace that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And so as we approach you this morning, God, we, we come to you with confidence, expectation, but also with heavy hearts. We pray, God, for the people of Ukraine right now that you would bring peace to their land. God, we, we know that with, with all, everything that's going on, uh, apart from a supernatural work on your behalf, uh, war will continue. So what we would pray is that you would break through that and you would, you would bring peace. You would allow these forces to retreat, that there wouldn't be any more bombings, there wouldn't be any more fighting, that there would be true lasting peace in that place. But along the way, we also know that there are people stuck right in the middle of all of the fighting that's going on, innocent people, not even people in the military, but innocent families Innocent people stuck in the middle of that. What we would pray is that you could get them out of there, that you would open up channels for humanitarian efforts to be able to not only evacuate people but bring in the needed supplies to take care of people, to provide for them. And even as they wait for that, God, I pray that you would supernaturally manifest yourself to these families that are stuck, that are fearful, that are hurting, that are suffering, manifest yourself in powerful ways to them right now in a way that brings them a comfort in the midst of war that so many of us could never even comprehend, that that would bring them a sense of your presence in a way that so many of us would long for, that they would literally have it right now, that you would meet them right now with enough grace to get through the day right now, and that, God, you would provide for them what they need for their good and for your glory. Lord, we pray for those who are helping them, whether it's the humanitarian efforts that are going on or, or, or anyone else who's trying to get supplies in there, that you would bless them, that you would provide for them what they need, and that you would open up the channels for it to get to them. Lord, we lift up the church in Ukraine. I've heard so many amazing stories about faithful people staying there, not to fight, but, but ultimately to, to help those who are there, to provide for them, to serve them, to risk their lives for them. And so we pray that you would mobilize your church, that you would allow them to be tangible expressions of your divine grace over those people, and that you would empower them through the Spirit to bring what is needed to provide for the people that are being impacted by this right now. God, our hearts are heavy for these families. So we ask that you'd bring peace. Lord, we lift up the leadership of Ukraine, whether it's President Zelensky or other leaders there. We, we pray that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them a courage that is contagious to the rest of the people. That you would allow them to connect with the partners that they need in order to move towards peace right now. And that, God, you would bless them with protection and keep them safe even as they work through the next round of talks that could happen as early as tomorrow. Lord, I pray that you would give them special favor in the eyes of the world and that, God, you would provide for them everything that they need to lead well right now. 
And then, Lord, we lift up the Russian people to you, so many people who are innocent that had nothing to do with this, whose lives are going to be dramatically impacted because of this war. And I, and I pray for them, God, just like we prayed for the Ukrainian people, that you would provide for them what they need right now and that, that you would manifest yourself to them as well. God, help them to see the need for peace. I pray that they would see the need to speak out on behalf of justice, that they would see the need to have to speak out on behalf of freedom. And we pray, God, that you would help them not only to provide for them, but also to be agents of peace in the world. God, we certainly pray over the families who will be impacted by the sanctions that are on this country right now, that you would provide for them all of the resources that they need to thrive, God, to, to, for their good, for your glory. And Lord, we lift up the leaders of Russia. God, whether it's Putin or the rest of the leaders there, we pray that you would change their hearts towards Ukraine. Holy Spirit, we pray you would work miracles in this moment, that, they might be, uh, that there might be a desire to bring about peaceful resolutions to what's going on right now, and that, God, it would happen in a supernatural way that the world is blown away by. So I pray that you would move over them and that they would pull back from Ukraine and that they would stop the shelling, stop the bombing, stop the fighting. So, God, we know that apart from you working miracles on the hearts of those people involved, it won't happen. So we lift them up to you and pray for them, that they would see who you are, would be overwhelmed by your glory, would recognize that you are more powerful and stronger than them. And that as a result, they would repent and turn to you and pull back. Lord, finally, we lift up the, the people around the world who look to support all those that are impacted by this war. We pray that you would give them the supplies and the resources that are needed to serve those that are, that are in exile right now, those that are refugees right now, those that are stuck right now. Give them the channels and the means and the, and the resources to provide for them. We lift up the families who are separated right now that you would comfort them and, and, and reunite them with their families soon. And we lift up the church around the world that you would mobilize them to meet this moment with grace, with courage, with compassion, and with power. That we might go to the least of these, that we might be called to those that feel marginalized and left behind, and that we may lay down our lives for those in need. So mobilize your church, whether it's in Russia, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in Europe, whether it's around the world. Finally, I, I, I pray God, we know that this isn't the only conflict going on in the world. We know that these aren't the only people suffering. And so God, allow this moment to, to remind us of those who are suffering throughout the world, those who are being oppressed, those who are hurting, those who are under crooked regimes. And we pray that you would bring your peace onto our world, that you would manifest your glory in powerful ways, God. And so we lift all this up to you, God, and our, our hearts are heavy for it, but we also know that you are bigger than it all. And so we come to you as your children with courage, with expectation, and with joy. We pray this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, a couple of announcements of some things that are going on just before we get going into John. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to John chapter 18. Uh, there's some Bibles in the chairs around you or maybe on the floor around you. Feel free to take one of those home with you as our gift if you need one. Um, and so 
You don't even have to tell me. Just take it with you. And while you're flipping over to John um, 18, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, this evening at 5 o'clock, we're starting a Bible study. For anyone who's interested in coming, uh, we're starting a Bible study uh, right up here. We're going to be going through the book of Judah. And so it's our spring Bible study. And uh, we would, or Jonah, did I say Judah? Yeah, there you go. Everybody looked at me funny. It's a, it's a whole different book entirely. Uh, that's right. I get paid to do this. All right, so never gets old. So we're going to go through Jonah, <laughs> and uh, it's a great time to come, and if you're new here, it's a great way to meet some people. Uh, there's some study guides that are in the lobby on your way out the door. You can grab one of those. They're $8 a piece. Uh, if money is tight for you and that's a little bit too much, don't feel like you got to pay for those. Just take those as our gift to you. Uh, we, we would rather you come, and so we would, anyone that wants to come, you're invited to come tonight. It's going to be a, a great start to that uh, spring Bible study and just wanted to put it on your radar, 5 o'clock tonight. Uh, the other thing I, I just kind of want to keep mentioning to you, especially if you're part of our church, is in a couple weeks we're going to launch our new website. It's actually already up. Our new website's going to be summitlimestone.org. And the reason I keep telling you that is because we're really looking to make that kind of the hub of our information so that when you need info, you go to summitlimestone.org. Uh, we're going to have an app that you can download at that point. Uh, that app is really there for you to get resources uh, pushed towards you. It's just an opportunity to be able to get more information more quickly. And then the final thing I'll say is if you give to us online, which many of you do, uh, if you give to us online, we're going to be switching our system over to this new website. So there'll be a couple of steps that we're going to be asking you to take. We're going to give you a few weeks to kind of ramp up into making that switch over to the new system that's going to allow us to organize this all a lot easier, and it's just a lot more efficient for us on the back end of stuff. And so anyway, just want to keep throwing that on your radar that it's coming. A, a lot of other fun stuff uh, happening soon, uh, just so you know. Uh, we got an awesome trip uh, planned for our, uh, for our students uh, this summer where they're going to Atlanta for a few days. Uh, if you're interested in that, go, go and talk to uh, Luke Whaley, who's our student ministries director. You can come talk to me, uh, talk to one of our staff. Man, we'd love to give you more information about that kind of stuff. Just a lot of really cool stuff going on. And so anyway, uh, should have opened up to John chapter 18 if you have a Bible, and we'll put some of these words up on the screen when we get to this. Uh, John chapter 18. Last week we started in the beginning of John um, 18. Dave came, did a great job uh, telling us that story about Jesus uh, in the garden and then being arrested. Uh, this week we're going to jump into the second part of John chapter 18, where there's a story where they bring Jesus, he's been arrested, and they bring him before the governor, uh, Pontius Pilate, and Jesus and Pilate have a conversation with one another, and Pontius Pilate ends the conversation with him, asking a question that all of us ask, and it's a question we're going to try to tackle in some specific ways today. So if you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 18, we're going to pick it up in verse 37. So John chapter 18, verse 37, it says this, then Pilate said to him, Jesus, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? What is truth? Anybody ever asked that question before, by the way? What is truth? I hope you've asked that question because we're going to talk about it today. So what, 
what is truth? I mean, it's kind of like one of those big questions, especially as a pastor. I get that question from a lot of people. And I've been doing this for a little while now, so I've, I've heard how that question has been answered over the years, and it tends to change over the years. When you say, what is truth? It kind of depends on where you were at that time when the question was answered. So, for example, back in the day, and, and some of you are old enough to remember this, uh, we lived in what was called like a modern culture. And so when you said, what is truth? The kind of common answer to what is truth back then was truth is like whatever science says it is or whatever our logic says it is. If it's logically true, then it must be true. And then kind of when you became, came into like my generation, like Gen Xers, uh, and some of you are Gen Xers still, you haven't been forgotten, trust me, but like some of your Gen Xers, did I get a whoop from a Gen Xer? That was amazing. There it is. We are represented finally. And so, you know, Gen X, it, was, it wasn't a modern view of truth. It was called a postmodern view of truth. And the postmodern view of truth was basically you, you don't know what truth is. Whatever your truth is is your truth. Whatever my truth is is my truth. In fact, who am I to tell you what is true and who are you to tell me what is true? There is no absolute truth except the absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. And so that was kind of like the postmodern self-defeating concept. And if you grew up in like the 90s or the early 2000s, that was the air you breathed. Like that was what you just were taught. If you went to college during that time, it was assumed that that's how you looked at the world. And now recently, we've kind of graduated into a new kind of culture where instead of being a modern view of truth, a postmodern view of truth, we're, we're in an era now that people are calling the post-truth era, after truth the post-truth era. And what marks the post-truth era, it's not what is logical, that's what makes sense. It's not, hey, whatever your truth is, is your truth, and whatever my truth is, is my truth. In the post-truth era, it's this. I get to determine what my truth is, and no one else is right except me. And so what I'll do is I kind of predetermine what do I want truth to be. I go online, I get enough of a crowd behind me to agree with me. Enough people say this is true, therefore it must be true. And so if anyone disagrees with us, then we need to defend this truth at all costs. And so if you're not of my tribe and you don't believe what I believe, I get to determine the truth and you have to submit to it no matter what. And this is why we have such a polarized culture today. It's because we're living in a post-truth culture. Everyone wants to make it about politics, but it's so much deeper than that. Really at the heart of the polarization that's happening in the world is this question that Pilate asked Jesus, really what is truth? And when you have a culture that says, it's true because I went online and I found out that this is what's true. Enough people said it's true and you just don't get it. That is recipe for all of the polarization that we see in the world. And so for us to assume in a post-truth culture that the average person can answer the question, what is truth, would be naive, because it's a hard one for people today. Nevertheless, Jesus comes into this story, a pilot looks at him and says, what is truth? And make no mistake, the Bible intends to tell you the answer. Truth throughout the Bible is a major, major theme. Aletheia, the Greek concept of truth, major theme throughout the Bible. And today, we're not going to see exhaustively the answer to that because it's a very deep answer, but we're going to see a very key answer to what is truth. And I'll just kind of summarize it, and we'll talk about it from the angle that the text brings us to today. When Pilate says, what is truth, what's implied in this is Jesus looking back at him and saying, I am truth. Over and against whatever else you think, Jesus is saying he is truth. And then this is kind of what's in the passage. Is he's saying, I am the truth because I, I, Jesus, 
I am always in charge no matter what. My power has no boundaries. I'm always in control. It doesn't matter what's happening. It doesn't matter the circumstances in the world. Make no mistake, I am the truth because I am always in charge. There is no higher truth than me. Now that's radically different than how all of us were raised, if you are alive in the room today, all of us were raised to think about truth in the common culture out there. But Jesus comes in and says, I am the truth because I'm always in charge. And now, I think that's good news for us today. Because I think the Bible gives us an answer to what is truth in a post-truth culture so that you can stand firmly on that truth. And in fact, when we peel back what does Jesus mean in this passage by him always being in charge, I think that you'll see that if you can believe, if you can grasp it, man, your life can change. It can radically change in some amazing ways. So there's four different ways that Jesus talks about being in charge that I think can change your life. And so we'll kind of walk through these briefly this morning as we go through this passage. So the first thing, if you look in this passage, is Jesus is in charge of his own life all the time. Jesus is in charge of his own life all of the time. In fact, if you jump back up, look at verse 28. John chapter 18, verse 28. Let me read this to you. It says, Then they, they is the Jews, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And then look at verse 32. It says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, do you see what's happening in this story? You have the Jews, and they're arguing with Pilate over what to do with Jesus, right? So the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate. They're like, he's broken all of our laws. And what they mean by that is he's blasphemed against God. And Pilate's like, what laws did he actually break that he's worthy of death? And they're like, would we have brought him to you if he hadn't broken any laws? And he was like, well, then you try him. And they're like, no, you try him. And you see him kind of like going back and forth, like junior high students, like middle school students, like, like arguing with each other back and forth. And they can't figure out what to do with Jesus. Neither of them want to take any responsibility for this situation. And they're going back and forth, and you're sitting there going, what is happening? And then you come to this in verse 32, and you find out, even though the Jews don't know what's happening, and even though Pilate doesn't know what's happening, Jesus very much does. In fact, Jesus had literally spoken out loud a prediction about his future death and what it would look like. And every time Jesus opened his mouth and predicted the future, it comes true. Like, it comes true. Stop and think about that for just a second. Jesus is so powerful that he, he, he even knows what's going to happen to his own life. He speaks it out loud and it happens. Like that's how in control of his life he is. I can't even, I, I wasn't even able to predict who would win the Super Bowl. Like I couldn't do that. Like, like I, I, the wrong team won, the Bengals lost. But I can't even predict the Super Bowl. 
And if I can't even predict the Super Bowl, like how in charge of my life am I really? You know, you and me, we are lousy at being in control of our own lives. It's just true. It's part of being human. You ever stopped and thought about that for, for just a second? Like, we're, we're pretty lousy at staying in control of our lives. I think most of us, when we're young, like, we think we're in control. So, like, when you're young, you have all these hopes, and you have all these dreams, and you, you have all these things that you think you need to do to stay in control, and as long as you kind of can keep control, you still have these hopes and dreams, and they might come true. And I think as you get older, you kind of begin to go, man, maybe I'm not in as much control as I thought. Some circumstances have happened in my life, and and things just aren't working out the way I thought. And then by the time you're older, you realize you're lousy at being in control of your life. In fact, you're not in control of your life. I've heard a lot of people kind of describe it like the deep end of the pool, right? Like when you're little, you like run up onto the high board, you jump off, you hit the water, you're like, this is great, my back doesn't even hurt. And like you backstroke to the side, you're so excited. You go up on the board, you jump off again, you jump in the water, everything's exciting. And then you get a little bit older and it's like you jump off the board, you hit the water, and you're like, ah, that kind of hurt my knee and my back a little bit. But you kind of doggy paddle over to the side and you're like, it's fine. But then when you get older, you don't even go up onto the high board anymore. You're just out in the middle of the deep end, treading water, just trying to keep your head up. That's all you got the energy for. I think life is a lot like that for a lot of us. The older you get, the more you come to a realization that you are lousy at being in control of your life. It's why so many people, they chase after money to find life, right? So you chase after your job and your career, and, and, and everything seems to be going great until you lose your job until you don't get the promotion, until you don't have enough money, until the housing market spikes so much that you can't find anywhere to live, like, till you get transferred to another city. Like, there's so many, so many people that think, if I can just stay in control of my bottom line finances and I can provide the house that my family needs, the future my family needs, only to find out you were never in control. That money can go away from you like that. And some of us, man, we look at that girl that I like a lot or that guy that I like a lot, and you think if I can just get with that person and we can get together and finally be together, then my life will feel like it has meaning. I'll feel like I'm accepted. And so you finally get together and you, and you think, man, if I can just keep in this relationship, then, then everything's going to be great. And then what ends up happening is that relationship doesn't work out the way you thought it was going to work out and she breaks up with you or he breaks up with you really doesn't even matter if you're married anymore in a lot of ways. A lot of people, they'll get married and they still break up. And now you're left without this relationship that you thought, if I just had this, it could, could stay in control of this, I'll have life, and now it's gone. You, we're lousy at controlling our life. I'll go one more. Uh, so, some of you are parents in the room, and, and just I'll be honest as a parent, some of us, man, we just think if I could just raise my kids and they just kind of turn out halfway normal, like just maybe don't be crazy, but like, uh, just turn out halfway, you don't have to go to Harvard, you know, like it's fine, but just be kind of normal, and, and, and if I can just raise them kind of the right way, I can get them out of the house, they can go, you know, get married, have their kids, and raise their kids, if I can just do all this with my kids, then my life will finally matter, it'll make sense, that's the one thing I need, and if I can just kind of control that, then everything's going to be fine, and then you end up having kids, and you find out I'm not in control of my kids, like they are their own human beings. And no matter how much you love them, no matter how much you want to be their parents, in the end, they're not yours. We're lousy at controlling our own lives. Jesus wasn't lousy at it. Jesus was always in control. Anytime that something threatened his plan, 
He stayed in control. I mean, literally last week, Peter comes in, they're about to arrest Jesus, and Peter takes out his sword, chops off the ear of the guy that's trying to arrest Jesus, and Jesus goes, Peter, put away your sword. I'm such in control of my life that nobody takes my life from me, I lay it down on my own. And then he literally is in so much control of his own life that he puts the ear back on the dude that got his ear chopped off. Like, that's how powerful and in charge Jesus is. And can I just tell you this? If Jesus is really in control of his life so much that he'll go up onto a cross, die on a cross, and then be raised back from the dead three days later, if he really is that much in control of his own life, then he is utterly trustworthy. And so therefore, you can trust him. You can trust him with your life. That's how powerful he is. Do you believe it? Because here's, here's the reality of our hearts. We'll only trust the things in the people that have ultimate power. I know this because I'm a dad. So I'll, I'll give you an example. When we first moved uh, to New Orleans, uh, I had two, my kids were both small. My boys were both small. There were a couple nights where we moved down there, and it was the first time they had really, really heard like a powerful thunderstorm. Like boom, boom, you know. Like they see a flash of light, and then all of a sudden there's this really big boom. You know, they might have heard thunder once or twice. We moved from... The cent- from central California where it never rains. And so they came there, they hear their first thunderstorm, and they're little, you know, I mean, like really little guys. And, and, and when that stuff started booming, you know, and, and they got that fear that kids have when they're kind of experiencing those really strong storms. And we're in the living room. You know what didn't happen? It didn't go boom. And then all of a sudden my two little boys looked at each other and went, you're who I need right now. I trust you. And like hug each other. Like that did not happen. Luke did not look at his little brother and go, you're the one that I need right now, I trust you. What did they do? They immediately look around and look at me, and they come over to me, and I grab them, and I say, everything's going to be fine, I hope, but everything's going to be fine. And we hug it out, and they look for me, because in their little minds at the time, I have the power, and therefore, I'm the one that's worthy of their trust. Jesus has the power to be in control of his entire life. And so if you've been wrestling with, is he really trustworthy? After all, look at everything that's happened in my life and look at all the hardship I've been through. Do you understand that he sees all that? In the same way he was in control, like he's looking at you right now saying, I'm still trustworthy. Will you turn to me? I have the power that you need. Yeah, Jesus makes it clear he is in charge of his own life, so therefore he's truth. But he also says in this passage that he is in charge of his enemies as well. In fact, if you look back at verse 33, look at 33, John chapter 18, verse 33. He says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now, Jesus is not only in control and in charge of his own life, but he's also in charge of his enemies. He's over them. He's more powerful than them. In fact, Jesus is sitting with the one guy back then that could set him free at this moment, Pontius Pilate. He's sitting with Pilate, and they're having this exchange. Pilate goes, hey, are you the king of the Jews or aren't you? 
Like, I heard you're the king of the Jews. All Jesus has to say is, yeah, I mean, some people call me the king of the Jews, but I haven't done anything wrong, so, I, you know, I haven't broken any laws, so can you set me free? And Pilate had been like, yeah, you can go free. You didn't break any laws. But Jesus looks at Pilate, and instead what he essentially says to Pilate is, you're sitting in this conversation with me right now thinking you have power over me. You have absolutely no clue who you're talking to. I'm not going to answer your question the way you want. In fact, he goes to Pilate, the one guy that can set him free, and he says, Pontius Pilate, you're dealing with me in the abstract. You're saying, are you the king of the Jews? I heard about it. And you're, you're making me an accessory to your life. My question is, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? He's looking power in the eyes and saying, do you have a clue who you're talking to right now? Because I am higher than every power. And there is not an enemy in the world that I'm not in charge of at any given point. Now, if you think about that for just a second, Jesus has the gall to look at Pilate and essentially challenge everything Pilate's ever known in his life. Do you believe me? And if that's the case, if he's so in charge of his enemies that there's no enemy over him, then that means you and me ultimately have nothing to fear in our lives. There's nothing to fear in your life. Nothing. You don't have to be anxious about anything. I mean, think about what happened with Jesus for just, I mean, have you ever, I mean, if you look at Jesus' life, it is crazy how many times he's, his enemies try to stop him. Remember, Jesus is out in the, in the wilderness. Satan tempts him three times. Yeah, remember that story where he's out in the wilderness, Satan's tempting him? And some people think that it was like this epic battle that was happening out in the desert, as if God the Father was up in heaven, like biting his fingernails, going, let's see how this is going to turn out. I hope Jesus makes it. But really what's happening is Jesus isn't even flinching as Satan attacks him three times. It's almost like Satan comes at him the third time, and Jesus is like flicking him away like some you know, pesky gnats or something. He's like, just get away from me. Like, I got other things to do. I mean, that's Satan himself. And Jesus just like flicking them out of the way. And then he goes through his life. And I mean, everything is trying to stop him. All the Jews, they come and they arrest him and they're trying to get him crucified. And he's like, well, you, you can't take my life. I'm going to give up my life on the cross. And so he goes up on the cross. Death itself, like the ultimate enemy the ultimate enemy of human beings is death itself. Jesus goes up onto the cross and slays death with the cross. How do we know that? Because he dies and then he raises back from the dead three days later. I mean, do you see how every step of the way, Jesus is so in control that even his enemies have no chance against him. And if that's the case, there is nothing that you're facing today. There's no Nothing to fear today. There's nothing going on in your life that he's not in control of. No enemy of God ultimately has power over you. Jesus is in control. So we don't need to fear anything. We don't need to fear anyone. And I guess my question to you is, what do you fear? Like, if you asked yourself honestly that question right now, and, and I know it's kind of hard sometimes when you're sitting here listening on a Sunday, like, to, to do that. But, like, if you just took a moment and go, what do I honestly fear? You don't even have to tell anybody, just like in your heart right now. Like, what do you honestly fear? 
most of the time, when you can identify what you ultimately fear, it'll tell you what your idols are. What your functional saviors ultimately are in your life. It's, the, it, it, it's one of those things where what we fear really ultimately dictates who we live for. And so when you look at your life, what do you really fear? I'll just be honest, since we're talking about parenting here. And I think a lot of you parents can echo the fear that I have. You know, one of my biggest fears is that my kids wouldn't turn out right. That my kids would, you know, run away from Jesus. That my kids would uh, rebel against the God of the universe. And that my kids, you know, you always have these like horrible things that you think. They're going to end up, you know, out on the streets, you know, blind and, and, and begging on the streets. Um, and, and you have like these inordinate fears about your kids. It's not just that they won't get the job that they want, but it's that they won't have the joy that you hope for them. And so I have these fears for my, my sons. They're teenagers now. My oldest is 14, my, my youngest is 12, so he's getting there. But you know, I have these fears for them. And, and if you look at it, if, that, if I ultimately fear that, then in the end what that tells me is the only thing that will really give me life is if my kids turn out okay. And so therefore my kids are really my savior. And, and I just got to tell you as a parent, like, your kids make lousy functional saviors. They were never meant to carry that weight. And so this little idol where we're actually taking our kids and making them into something that they were never created to be, where we're putting expectations on them that they can never carry, where our entire well-being is, is being dictated by whether or not these kids turn out the way we want them to turn out, that is a sinful thing. It's not what they deserve. It's this enemy, this idol in our life. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is bigger than that. Jesus can begin to set you free from needing to find your functional savior and all these things, all these idols in your life. He can come in and defeat them. He can make you the kind of parent that recognizes as a dad, you're not your kid's true father. They have a true father. That you have been stewarded your kids for a season so that you can love them, put them at the foot of Jesus as often as you possibly can, give them the grace that they need in order to grow, to ultimately be the one that points them to Jesus but then lets them go because in the end they are his and not yours. And I'm telling you, Jesus can give you peace in that and you'll actually be a better parent as a result because he is in control of every enemy to the gospel out there. This is also why some of you can drop your masks, by the way. You think your addiction is too big, it's too dirty. If people knew what you were really doing, like they would reject you. There's not enough grace for someone like you. There's grace for other people, but for you, you're the, you're the exception. Like you've done too much, you're too bad. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is bigger than that enemy of the addiction that you're fighting. He, he's bigger than those secrets that you're keeping. And his grace extends even to you. That's why this is a safe place for you to come drop your masks and be yourself, because Jesus is in control, even over every enemy of the gospel. All right, I got to keep going. All right, third one, Jesus isn't just in charge of his own life. He's not just in charge of his enemies, but he's also in charge of his kingdom. If you look at verse 36, John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. 
And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For, the, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus says my kingdom, in verse 36, is not of this world. Jesus has a kingdom that's not of his world, and therefore, when we live life in Jesus' kingdom, according to his kingdom, then we live an entirely new life where we actually thrive. In fact, we're going to see, we're going to take the next three weeks, and we're going to break down a little bit more. What does it look like to live life in Jesus' kingdom in three kind of specific ways in our culture today? And so we're going to do a lot of that over the next three weeks, but for now, just know that Jesus is in charge of that kingdom, and life in that kingdom is what you were created for, and that when you're walking in line with life in that kingdom, you'll find more joy and more hope, more peace and purpose and power than you can possibly imagine. So we'll come back to that over the next three weeks. But the fourth one that Jesus says is that not only is he in charge of his own life, not only is he in charge of his enemies, not only is he in charge of his kingdom, he's also in charge of our lives, too. He's utterly in control of our lives as well. If you look at verse 38, remember Pilate said to him, what is truth? And then look at what he says, what it says. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. If you're from Alabama, Barabbas was a robber. Jesus is in charge of our lives as well. Just like he was in charge of the Jews' lives back then, he was in charge of Pontius Pilate's life back then, he was even in charge of the robber's life back then. And because he's in charge of our lives, you can rest in him today. You can rest in him today. Say, where do you get that from that passage? Well, a couple of different ways. If you look at that story that's happening right here, Pontius Pilate goes out to the Jews and he says, this man has done nothing wrong. I find no guilt in him. But because he doesn't want to do the right thing, instead he wants to preserve his own self, he says to them, and so therefore, if you want, I can release him to you. He should have just released him. But instead he says, if y'all want, I can, he didn't say y'all, but if y'all want, I can release them to you. And then the Jews should have seen he has done nothing wrong. He's not guilty. And they should have said he's an innocent man. Release him. But instead, literally the Jews, instead of choosing Jesus, they choose Barabbas, Barabbas, the robber. They literally choose him. They should have done the right thing. They choose the sinner. They choose sin. Why? Because the Bible is very clear. They were utterly sinful. That's why. The Bible's really clear that the default mode of the human heart is that you and me, just like them, are utterly sinful. See, sin in the Bible isn't just defined by the bad things we do on the weekends. Sin is who we are apart from Jesus. The Bible says that we are enslaved to sin. We're blinded because of sin. We're dead in our sin. We are sinful, deep, deep down. 
See, the, the reason that you need to turn to Jesus is because he's so in charge of your life that he knows how sinful you are. You didn't walk in here today with a secret to Jesus. He knows it. You didn't walk in here today putting on a mask, hoping no one will ever discover how bad it's gotten in your life. He already sees all that. You didn't walk in here today with a proud step in your walk, just going, look at how great I am. He already knows your heart deep, deep down. No one's walked in here and escapes his gaze. Like, he knows it all. And the Bible's real clear before we ever get to the good news that we are utterly, utterly sinful. He's so in charge of your life that he knows you. Now, if you think about it for just a second, that sinfulness runs really, really deep. I have one of my best friends in the world came up from New Orleans and visited us last weekend. And if you ever get a chance to talk to him, an uh, amazing guy, he's in his mid-60s now, but he became a Christian late in his life has this amazing story that would just melt your heart if you hear about how he became a Christian, how he was converted. And, and people will go up to him all the time and they'll say to him, hey, Pops, like, who were you before you were a Christian? And he gives the same answer. He'll look you in the eye, he'll, he'll say to you, looking at you, he'll say, man, I was a dog. If you hung around me, you caught fleas. Now, most of us go, man, okay, like, that's pretty, that's pretty hardcore. Like, uh, and we think about our own lives, and I'm like, man, okay, I, I wasn't maybe, maybe I wasn't the flea dog. Maybe I was more like a labradoodle. Like, I, I was a dog, like, but not, not like you were. We think we, we were pretty bad, but we're not that bad, you know? Like, I mean, Pops is bad, but, like, we weren't that bad. And so maybe rather than thinking about you were a dog and you caught fleas, maybe, maybe think about it this way, because I think in a lot of ways we are sometimes in our sin like dogs. Um, I have ironically, a golden doodle. Um, he's about two years old. And if you took my dog and you put him in the middle of the living room and you had him sit right there, first of all, I would be amazed that you got him to sit. But like, make him sit in the living room, right? And then you put me on one side of the living room over here. Now me, his, his amazing, wonderful, loving owner, right? Like the, the one that has cared for this dog, like you wouldn't believe, sometimes more than I've cared for my kids. Like over the last two years. I've fed the dog. I've washed the dog. I've given the dog affection. Literally, without me, he will not live. Like, the dog is not going to make it. Like, I am that to the dog. I, I'm not just the alpha. I'm almost the omega to him. Like, that's how, that's how much of a relationship we have, and he loves me. He tells me every day. Now, you put me on one side of the room, right, and then you got my dog sitting here, and on the other side of the room, you just put a piece of pizza on the ground, right? That pizza that he knows, because again, I've told him, and we've had this conversation, he knows if he eats that pizza and eats too much of it, it's going to make him sick, and it ultimately is going to kill him. It's not good for you, buddy. That's what he knows, right? So he knows his choice right here. He knows what he's dealing with. And so here is my dog sitting in the middle of the living room. He's got that choice. Ten times out of ten, he chooses the pizza. Every time. Every time may or may not have actually experienced that in real life a couple times. He will choose the pizza. He'll, he'll run away from the thing that he knows will bring him life and choose the thing that he knows will bring him death all the time. The Bible is very, very clear that the default mode of our hearts is that we will run to the things that bring us death, even at the cost of running from the thing or the person that we know will bring us life. We're just like the Jews 
in this story. We're just like Pilate. Some of us are accusing Jesus like the Jews. You're not who you say you are. You're, you're trying to crucify him openly. Most of us in our sin were indifferent towards Jesus like Pilate. But in both cases, we are utterly sinful. And Jesus knows everything about you. And yet, as we'll see in the passages that will come after chapter 18, he goes up onto the cross for you. He goes to the cross for you. The one who was yelling, crucify him. The one that was choosing sin over him over and over and over again. He goes to the cross for you. He sees you that came into this room today and you're hiding behind your sinfulness, hoping and praying that no one will ever find it out. He knows how deep it goes. He sees all the shame that you feel and he goes, I'm going to the cross for you. He sees us in all of our wickedness, all of our sinfulness, all of our rebellion. And he doesn't wait for us to clean up our lives. No, he's in control of our lives. We ran away from him, and so what Jesus does is he now runs to us rather than waiting for us to choose him. Jesus goes after you today. He's calling out your name. He's saying there is grace for you. I go to the cross. I take on the, 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 the penalty and the sinfulness that you committed. Like, I get what you deserved, and you get grace because that's who I am, and that's how much I love you. Do you realize if you walked in here today and you have a track record where you go, I shouldn't even be in the room right now. You shouldn't have even let me through the door. The, the offer on the table to you today is a God that sees your entire life. He's so in control that he's offering you not just a clean slate, a whole new heart today. Not a heart of sinfulness, a heart of righteousness. Not a righteousness that you accomplish through good works. A righteousness that was accomplished through Jesus' good works as he goes up onto the cross for you. Like, do you look at your life and do you see how much grace he has extended to you in the gospel? You realize that you did not go after Jesus. There's nothing in you that merits being saved by Christ. You can't save yourself. I mean, stop and think about it for just a second. Like, the Bible says you were blind in your sin. Blind people don't just chase after their Savior. And you go, well, they weren't really talking about being blind, you know, it's just kind of a metaphor. Okay, well then the Bible says you were enslaved to your sin. Last time I checked, slaves don't run towards their liberator to be set free. They're in chains. They can't go anywhere. And you go, well, you didn't really mean like you're enslaved to sin. I mean, the Bible is just being metaphorical, right? Okay, well then the Bible says you're dead in your sins. And I don't know about you, but dead people don't get up and go chase after the person that's going to give them life. Like, what else do you want the Bible to say? You're not in control of your life. There are enemies pressing against you. And you are so lost in your sin before you knew Jesus. You're so lost in your sin that you are utterly hopeless. And yet Jesus arrives and he has power over the world. He has power over all circumstances. He has power over his own life. He has power over all the enemies trying to keep you from him. And he knows you so deep down and is in such control of your life that he has chased you to this moment right now. He's saying, I'm here. In my grace, I'm here. 
offering you life through me and what I do for you as I go up onto the cross. Man, if that's the case, and you can turn to him and trust him right now, then you can rest. You don't have to be your own savior anymore. You can turn to him and you can rest in the grace that he's given you. You can know that there's no enemy that can overcome you. He's more powerful than them. And you can know that he is utterly trustworthy because he's always, always in control. So what's left in the room right now, it's not about my words. It's not about how, like, am I preaching a sermon or not. This is about God's word. This is what Jesus said in verse 37. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do, the, do you hear the voice of Jesus calling out to you today? Then turn to him, trust him, know that he is in control. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the grace that we can gather in this room right now and hear you speak to us from your word. And so that's what I would pray first, is that you would open up our ears to hear from you, close off our ears to hear my words that aren't in line with what you've revealed about yourself. Have mercy on me, God, and close off our ears to things that are not from you. But what I do pray, God, is I know in this room there are a lot of different types of people, and we all need to know that you're in control in some different ways. There are people in here right now, God, and they, they have gotten to a place in their life where they just don't trust you anymore. Remind them that your power is so great that it makes you utterly trustworthy. And I pray, God, that you would reveal that to them. You would, you would whisper that into their heart right now. They would hear your voice and they would trust you today. Some people are so overwhelmed by their life that they feel like they're utterly out of control. They feel like the world is just going crazy and they have fears, God. They have real fears. I pray that you would remind them today of just how powerful you are, powerful over every enemy that would threaten you. More powerful than death itself, I pray today that they would find peace and that they would have nothing to fear. So speak to them. Let them hear your voice and turn and trust you. God, some of us in here today, man, we feel like we're so utterly wicked and sinful that there's no hope for us. It's too late for us. And I pray today that you would speak to us and remind us that you know everything. You're so in control of our life. You know everything about us, and yet you chose to go to the cross for us because you loved us. Not because we were clean. You loved us because you love us enough to call us your sons and daughters. And so to those people who are struggling with shame in the room right now, those people who are struggling with addiction in the room right now, those people who are struggling with sinfulness that they just can't let go of, I pray that you would speak to them right now and that they would hear your voice and the grace that you have given them. They would turn to you and trust you. Father, it's for your glory today that we gather but your glory has been made known by the beautiful power of Jesus being in control. You are great, and so we're grateful to you. And we pray this to you, Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
So as we close out today, we're going to worship God in two different ways. We're going to celebrate communion together, and then we're going to sing and worship him together as a group. Um, First, we're going to do communion. You should have gotten a couple of cups when you came through the door. One cup has some bread in it. The other cup has some grape juice in it. You can get up and go grab some if you didn't. It's okay. It's, you, can, you can go run and grab that. But if you have that bread, go ahead and take it out. And that bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken on the cross. In other words, if you want to take this bread with us today, then what I'd ask you to consider is, do you believe that when Jesus died on the cross and his body was broken there for you, that your sins were so utterly paid for that you get to be with God now, not through what you do, but through what Jesus did for you? Like, can you believe that he knows everything about your life and he still chose to go to the cross for you? Do you believe that all of the sin and all the shame that you have had in your life has been paid for on the cross and that grace is now yours and you were made complete and holy and righteous because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, can you turn to him and trust him for all that? Then if so, I encourage you to take the bread with us today. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and he passed it around to his disciples. He said, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is the bread of my body that will be broken for you so that your sins may be forgiven. So do this in remembrance of me. Now, if you take that cup, there's a little piece of foil on the top, and you can pull that back, and there's some grape juice in the cup. That grape juice represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us, but that blood of Jesus represents the new covenant that God has entered in with us. As we say every week, it's a new covenant that through the gospel, we get to have God. We literally get to be with him at all times. In other words, if you believe that what Jesus showed us is that God is so in control that your entire life is now with him. Through faith in Jesus, you get to be with him for all times. There's no enemies that will thwart you. There's nothing in the world that's going to come in the way of God. One day, Jesus will literally come back and his kingdom will know no ends. And you'll live with him for all of time, for all of eternity. If you can believe that that new covenant purchased for you that kind of relationship with God, and you can receive that today through faith, then we encourage you to drink the cup with us. That on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he also took a cup, passed it around to his disciples, and he said, drink this, all of you. This is the cup of my blood, the new covenant that will be shed for you. So do this in remembrance of me. And so would you stand with me as we close out in prayer? God, we As we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the name of Jesus until he comes. We praise you for the grace you've given us, and now we pray that you would receive the worship from us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.